Hey, everybody. Welcome to Friday the 13th, the series. I'm your producer, Robert. And I'm your host, Hill Street. And after a complete, spoiler-filled recap of the episode, we are going to discuss the show you either just learned existed or always wondered how it existed. We promise the answers will be few and far between, because we're just here to have some goofity fun exploring a show that, despite or possibly even because of its faults, isn't good and isn't so bad it's good, but is still somehow oddly charming. Let's dive in, shall we? Full disclosure, I believe I had seen the first four episodes when I wrote this script, and I've seen the first five as of this recording. With Hill Street, we're trying something new, just to see what works best. So she watched this episode right before recording and is fearlessly reading this script with zero preparation. That said, Hill Street, are you speeding? I'm speeding. Having just watched this for the very first time, literally an hour ago, what did you think? I enjoyed it. <laughs> um... I think I actually liked it more than the first episode, which I know will shock you, because I'm sure you don't feel that way. Do you think that's Stockholm Syndrome, where you've been trapped in that first episode for so long <laughs> that, you know, as we say, the bar was low, but it still feels good to clear it? <laughs> that did cross my mind that maybe it just was my, my mind and body was relieved to not watch that first episode again. But I was like, wow, this one's good. I'm sticking to what I said in the first episode, which is that I think that uh, Ryan the Lion is my favorite actor and favorite character. I like him, and he was in this episode a lot, and I think he carried it. I do. Wow, <laughs> hot take. Hot take. Yeah, I thought he was great. I thought he was funny and entertaining. I thought he had good delivery. He made good choices, but he didn't push them. And uh, I like his kind of like, I don't know, New Yorker accent. I, I like him. I think he's good. I really enjoyed him. And yeah, it felt good to get out of that first episode for sure. Pill Street, do you have a thing for creepers? Um, I do. I just think they're hot and I just, I wish he was creeping on me. He definitely was still creepy. No question. But, you know, it's his thing. Everyone has their thing. It's his thing. I don't fault him. I'm super excited to hear you read this now because honestly, I mean, I remember the gist of what I said, but I wonder now, did I say anything that uh, you're going to, you're going to vehemently disagree with in terms of uh, <laughs> John D. LeMay's performance? Oh, I will definitely let you know if I do. But I also felt like this storyline was much more cohesive than the first episode. I will say that right off the bat. Yeah, at least in the broad strokes. I mean, Lord knows I <laughs> I did take this one to task at one point where there was one moment. I don't know how many times I had to watch it just to make sense of this convoluted off-screen plan that all happened you know, long before the episode begins. But uh, other than that, if you can just... I don't know. I guess if you can just go with it and you don't think about it too much, it's probably fine. But yeah, we'll that we'll definitely talk about it when yeah. we get there, because uh, there is there is some shenanigans and some complexity going on off screen that seems way overwritten. Yeah, this is your first time uh, seeing this script, so get yourself positioned, get yourself set, and whenever you're ready, here we go. In a monastery the size of a castle, an abbot and two monks discussing selling the. Monas, I almost said monas. <laughs> Castle monastel. Are you saying it monastel? Yeah, yeah. Uh, once again, talk about a beginner's trap. I sure nailed it. Yeah, we're starting off with my own personal portmanteau of monastery and castle. How are you saying it? Monastel. Monastel, as in castle. Uh, let's go ahead and I mean, go actually uh, read episode two, the poison pen, just to let everyone know what the title of this episode is. Okay. Episode two, the poison pen. In a monastery the size of a castle, an abbot and two monks discussing 
cheese. An abbot and two monks discussed selling the monastal to land developers. Two land developers. The actor playing Brother Lacroix, there's that French again, is good, but as always, I would have loved to have seen Michael Gross in the role. While the abbot heads up to the roof spread... Jeez. While the abbot heads up to the roof to spread news of the decision not to sell to the rest of the Brotherhood via carrier pigeon, the Oracle of Death, a monk in a dimly lit underground chamber, writes with a quill pen a passage about the abbot we hear read aloud in the whispered tones of someone trying to corner the ASMR market. Which, I have to tell you, the whole whispering thing literally made my skin crawl. It grossed me out so much. I'm, like, not a fan of whispering in general, but this whispering especially was, like, super gross to me. Oh, are you anti-ASMR? Absolutely. I hate... I hate most weird sounds and stuff like that. I hate a lot of words, as you know, but... Yeah, ugh. It's bleh. He did not like that. Yeah, we almost we probably should have gone into that last episode when a, a certain word came up. Yeah, we what, what is the reason for, would you care to share the reason for why you hate certain words that other people would not find offensive in any way? You know, it's called uh, misophonia. It's like an actual like mental, I don't say mental disorder, but it's it's like something that some people have where certain words just like trigger something in their brain and it really bothers them. It's common. Most people hate the word moist. Like that word grosses people a lot of people grosses a lot of people out moist does not bother me at all um i get that that one is probably like an association for people like the idea of something being moist grosses people out i don't know moist doesn't bother me at all i have weird ones um my sister has it too we both hate like chewing sounds and swallowing sounds like any eating sounds makes our skin crawl but i have like specific words like, I'll tell anyone who's listening. Anyone, by the way, just as a side note, we, we joke that, like, oh, no, 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 it's us for using code words. Anyone who heard this and they know me would immediately know this is me because I'm pretty sure I'm the only person on the planet with this. But that aside. Um, Once again, I, you are in those medical journals. <laughs> I hate, my damn, I hate the word L-U-N-C-H. It makes me want to vomit. I hate when people say it. I hate when people reference it. I hate when people talk about it. Um, like the actual meal itself is fine. I call it midday meal. My whole family and friends call it midday meal because when someone says it, I just want to punch them in the face. Because you are basically a monk yourself. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. My sister doesn't like, and hers isn't as bad as mine. Like she can tolerate it. She's not a fan of cookies or soup. Both of those words gross her out. She likes both of those things, just not the words. Exactly, yeah. Okay. Now, I guess I opened a whole Pandora's box, and that was not the answer I was expecting. I, Like a good lawyer, I, I thought I knew what the answer to this question was going to be, and uh, prove me wrong, Hill Street. I <laughs> thought it had something to do with um, fractions that your mind makes of the syllables. Oh, yeah, that's something I do, too. But that's not why that word bothers me. There might be some kind of psychology behind why that word bothers me, but I don't know what it is. But yeah, I do alphabetize every word as I say it, as other people say them, like I'm doing it right now. I alphabetize each word. I count how many letters I have to move to alphabetize it over how many letters are in the word, and I make it into a fraction. And there's like good fractions and bad fractions, (laughs) good fractions and unhealthy fractions, which just all of this equals to I'm insane, but um. Yeah, but no, that that doesn't make me like certain words gross me out. I just will be like, that's a bad word. That's a good word. Like, all I have to do is move the to the beginning of the word. And oops, guess it's not so anonymous. But you know, if someone's name was, 
<laughs> you move that to the beginning of the name, boom, it's in alphabetical order. That's one letter over six. That's one sixth. That's a very small fraction. That's a good one. I like that. So. Oh, obviously. Obviously, is a good fraction. Yeah, obviously. That's a good one. But yeah, anyway, oh. cuckoo bananas. Does that uh, fraction, um, does that fraction thing you do have a term for it? A healthy fraction? Well, I mean, I don't want to call it, it's even tough to discuss. Uh, I don't want to call it a condition, but, you know. You, oh, oh, the way, the, I have like OCD. Yeah, for sure. Well, just, is there a term when people, I don't know, alphabetize their words and create fractions out of them? Is there a term for doing that? I mean, that's something very specific to me that I do, but it's a form of OCD. It's like a, a obsessive compulsive behavior. And there's like different forms of OCD. Like I know like my sister obsessively counts like shutters on houses and wheels on trucks as they go by. She also counts like syllables and counts them on her hands as she talks and stuff. So that's her form of OCD. Mine is this. I just obsessively alphabetize everything that I see and say and turn it into fractions and stuff. So it's a form of OCD. So you're saying it's in the medical journals under Hill Street Syndrome. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Yep, it's mine. All mine. Lucky me. Congratulations. Absolutely useless and absolutely maddening all at the same time. Copy that. <laughs> Long story short, the oracle tells us that the abbot likes birds because he longs to fly. Pretty sure even the pope uses a telephone, but good on the show for including an external image system. The abbot's comfort with miracles will have to explain why he doesn't seem concerned when he hovers above the roof and drifts out over the edge. That or his levitation looks as poorly green screened to him as it does to us. <laughs> it's at this point, show, you completely redeem yourself with an old school stunt fall that probably isn't as amazing as I think it is, but feels like a plunge into an oasis after a long trek across the dusty desert of modern visual effects. No compositing, no harness, no digital while removal. Just a stuntman plummeting 100 feet onto an off-screen airbag. <laughs> I had the same thought. Are you a sucker for a good old-fashioned stuntfall? Yeah, I was like, hell yeah, practical effect, baby. Good for you. Nice. And the guy really went for it. I mean, all limbs spread out, screaming top of his lungs, head plummeting towards the earth. I was like, good job, man. That's right, no stunt dummies here. Yeah, took guts. And he was acting his ass off. <laughs> I honestly can't believe they didn't just use a dummy, but hey, it's Canada where life is cheap. Seriously, they shot it from three angles, and I really wonder if they had the budget for three cameras or if the stuntman had to do it three times. Regardless, bravo. That image of a flailing abbot falling out of screen should have been the end of it, but, of course, they couldn't stop while they were ahead. We're subjected to a low-angle shot that's kind of neat in its composition, but fails completely in its execution. The abbot, who would have exploded on impact like a water balloon full of stroganoff, managed to land on some portion of a white wrought iron table and chair set, leaving him bent over it backwards like Homer Simpson over that fire hydrant. Yeah, the angle he landed at made absolutely no sense. I was looking at it like, he fell forwards head first. How is he suddenly at this angle? It just made no sense. But Yeah, and like 100 feet or more. Yeah, exactly. And just like a little trickle of blood. And I'm like, you would be in pieces, bro. Wait, did, did you just read ahead again? Or was that an honest thought you just had? No, it was just a thought I just had. Once again, same wavelength. <laughs> There's a little blood on his mouth and a single stream flowing from his chest. And I want you to remember that later. A monk who could be Francis Ford 
Coppola comes run waddling in as fast as one can <laughs> a monk who could be Francis right. Ford huh? it's uh yeah yeah it's Francis Ford Coppola I thought I figured you knew who he was but yeah, yeah I know out of context yes <laughs> a monk who could be Francis Ford Coppola comes run waddling in as fast as one can wearing a robe Raises his hands with all the enthusiasm of a referee declaring a touchdown, then rattles back from whence he came. <laughs> Sorry, my last port. This is my last attempt at a portmanteau. Uh, rattles, run waddles. Okay. Sorry, I swear to God, it's the last time I'll ever do it. <laughs> <laughs> then rattles back from whence he came. If it wasn't for the oracle's voiceover at this moment, I'm certain he would have shouted, "Mamma mia!" A phrase many Italians actually use, so no angry messages. <laughs> Two other monks drift in and maintain a respectful distance. So distant, it kind of passes the inflection point and drifts back towards disrespect. Seen from a new angle, your favorite antique store, and mine, actually looks like a legitimate store in a real commercial neighborhood. And all it took was a static establishing shot, so kudos to both of us. And episode one was as good as its promise, and that Louis Vondredi's antique is now called Curious Goods, which, if you think about it, is a real dick move. Your uncle died, and the first thing you do is rename his store? A store you don't even want but are running out of obligation? Dirty pool, mister. Dirty pool. The abbot's death is literally front-page news. A rather insensitive headline reads, Oracle of Death Dead Right Again. But it's the mirror, and what do you expect from that notoriously sensational rag? This episode's six months ago is this headline that asks us to believe the press is somehow aware of a monk in a basement in a secluded monastery behind an iron fence that has perfectly crumulent ability to predict deaths, instead of the far more likely alternative that he's either a murderer or just learning of the deaths, then writing them down after the fact. Front page news. <laughs> I have to stop you just to, just to congratulate you on the fact that you nailed cromulent, which which isn't a word. It's not it's not it's not my own thing either. It's from The Simpsons. There was a joke where they they had characters make up the words embiggins and cromulent. Uh -huh. And the whole gag is that neither of them are real words, except at this point, because of The Simpsons, they kind of have both. I think they're literally both recognized as real words in the dictionary now but they're not, they're not real words, and yet somehow that's the one you nailed correctly. Didn't even <laughs> seriously. hesitate. Seriously, kudos. I usually have pretty decent phonics abilities, but some of these words, I'm, I'm like... Yep, I know I'm throwing you some curveballs, but well done. No, I literally had the same thought of like, is nobody going to question if this dude is killing these people? Or just that after the death, because I'm like, they're not like going up he's not posting these on facebook a week before they happen i don't know yeah how do they know about him at all and even if they do how do they not suspect him of murder i know exactly the far more plausible option that he commits murder yeah way back earlier i referenced an actor by the name of michael gross does that name ring any bells with you mm -mm. okay so i'll start naming a few projects I mean, a lot of people would know him best from the 80s uh, sitcom Family Ties, where he played a father. But the reason why you actually might know him is, are you familiar? And please tell me you are. I can't believe we've, I don't think we've ever discussed this. 
Are you familiar with the Tremors movies? Absolutely. Okay, well, Michael Gross is Burt Gummer, the survivalist. Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I know him. And basically, as the series has gone on, he's essentially like, you know, the tentpole on which everything is based other than the Tremors themselves. Uh-huh. You know, I could totally see playing that one particular monk. Yeah, he almost looks like him. Especially if you've seen Family Ties when he's not playing a survival, a hardcore survivalist. Yeah. Plus, he's, he's Michael Gross, so there's nothing he can't do. Definitely. Good call. Apparently, the expense of the failing stunt once again preempted purchasing wardrobe for Ryan the Lion, who crawls halfway there with actual pants instead of shorts and a wallet chain, no less, but the sunglasses hanging from his t-shirt stretch the neck. Oh my god, the sentence is so long. I can't with you. You you with the freaking sentence is the whole paragraph. Okay. I'm working on it. I'm working on it. It's it's a work in progress. I will, uh, I I promise to do better. And, uh... (laughs) And uh, with that concession, uh, I will mention that it's a falling stunt. (laughs) It's what I like to deem the concession sandwich. I concede a point, and then I give you direction, and then I concede another point. (laughs) Sorry about the long... (laughs) Sorry about the run-on sentences. It's falling stunt, not failing stunt. And sorry about the unique portmanteaus. I'm not sure I forgive you for all of it yet, but I'm looking in my heart. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Apparently, the expense of the falling stunt once again preempted purchasing wardrobe for Ryan the Lion, who crawls halfway there with actual pants instead of shorts and a wallet chain, no less. But the sunglasses hanging from his t-shirt stretch the neck in a really sloppy, distracting way. More baffling, the makeup department apparently had insufficient concealer to hide the bags under his eyes. I can only assume the writer of the exchange between Mickey and Ryan. No one can predict the future. How can you predict that? dislocated their shoulder, overreaching to make that joke. Bare minimum, it needed a punch-up of, no one has or will ever predict the future, for it to even make sense. We're next asked to believe Ryan, a man who knows about diablerie, diablerie. We're next asked to believe Ryan, a man who knows about diablerie and douchen, deucens. God damn it. Sorry, that's the uh, last time I can think of that those get mentioned. I'm hearing a lot of this is the last time. I'll stop referencing that. I'll stop writing scripts. How about that? (laughs) We're next asked to believe Ryan, a man who knows about Diablerie and Deucens, doesn't know about Nostradamus. Speaking of predictions, Jack Marshak pronounces Nostradamus two ways, thoughtfully future-proofing against internet pedants. Pedants? No, yeah, you nailed it. Pedants. Instead of ignorance, Mickey gets to demonstrate stupidity by announcing she doesn't believe in tarot or astrology, yet she hunts haunted objects. So, predicting the future, dumb. An evil wish-granting pen? Yeah, obviously. Actually, I didn't even think to mention it the last time, but the show really went from zero to 60 regarding everyone getting on board with believing in the supernatural, but I guess it was the 80s. Genius in training, Jack, suddenly realizes a monk that can predict the future might just be something they should look into when he recognizes the quill pen the oracle uses as something he himself had had a hand in creating. Uh, Jack, you seem like a cool dude and all, but wouldn't be doing our job if we didn't ask. Are you evil? This exciting moment is staged with all three actors lit from behind, either partially or, in Ryan's case, completely in shadow, leaving only his soft voice and almost mumbled delivery to convey his performance. I resent that. His performance was brilliant. Noted. 
Total aside, but having Ryan sit on the back of a chair with his feet on the seat was probably done for compositional reasons, and is completely unfitting with his character, but very distracting in that he's positioned so far back it looks like he's going to tip over backwards if he sits up by even two degrees. It's the eight-foot-tall stuffed giraffe of this episode. Yeah, because he's a brilliant actor, and he knows how to do something like that. He's probably a stunt double, too. Daniel Day-Lewis-level commitment there. I do suddenly want to, yes, and I do suddenly want to believe that that was Ryan the Lion, John DeLumay, falling from that rooftop. <laughs> I, I choose to believe that it was. I never doubted that it wasn't, to be honest. I thought we were on the same page about that. The stud guy's up there like, I, I don't know about this one, guys. I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not feeling this one. And John DeLumay is just like, hold my beer. <laughs> Mickey is offended, but actually thrilled she won't be able to investigate a brotherhood. But no, cut to Ryan wrapping her chest like a mummy while she vows to revenge on him. Oops. <laughs> <laughs> nice cover. <laughs> Clearly a more sensible plan than Jack going with or Ryan going on his own. Ryan then creeps on Mickey and even escalates by putting his arm around her, which Mickey slaps away before warning him, keep your hands off me. Sam and Diane, they are not, but even if that was the writer's intention, they are cousins. And just to piggyback on that, he like emphasizes how hot her figure is. Yep. It's a lot. Yeah. Am I starting Am I starting to, to pull the onboard train? anti-cousin creeping um i recognize that they are cousins and that is unusual behavior yes absolutely they definitely okay. push the envelope in this for sure i don't know why they keep insisting on making him hit on her when they emphasize to us multiple times that they're cousins i think it's very strange do i think incest is weird jury's still out but i do think it's weird that they're pushing that angle so hard on the show yeah, I know. I know you plant your flag firmly on Cousin Seth's territory, but hopefully we can reach a common ground here, Hill Street. Mm, we got time. Lots of episodes. We got time. Jack uses real 14th century parchment to forge mon monastic, monastic? Monastic. See, I use phonics. I use phonics for all these words I don't know. Y'all need to get hooked on phonics, people. Jack uses real 14th century parchment to forge monastic transfer documents. No loss to antiquity there, but an odd choice since the documents don't need to, and in fact shouldn't be ancient, but waste this precious resource and use flowery calligraphy he does, conveying a child's understanding of how modern monasteries operate. Oh, right, a carrier pigeon. Withdrawn. Still, the message itself has all the sophistication of Billy is sick, so no school today. Signed, Billy's mom. I'm not mad, Jack. I'm just disappointed. Even though the documents claim they're being transferred from Yorkshire, England, John D. LeMay, the actor playing Ryan the Lion, wisely chooses not to attempt an accent. In a similar vein, Mickey wisely claims a vow of silence instead of attempting to speak in a lower register, but this excuse is made up by Ryan on the spot, so they apparently showed up just assuming no one would ever address her. What could go wrong? I did appreciate the vow of silence thing, and I was like, good job, Ryan. Like, the, qu the quick thinking on your feet, and she just went along with it and looked relieved, but I would have actually kind of liked to hear this actress try a male voice just for a second just for comedic effect, and then they decide the vow of silence thing, but, you know. Yeah, no, it would have been interesting, too, since Roby is a professional singer. Maybe she could have pulled it off. Yeah. I'm sure you get to this in your 
spiel here somewhere, but just also just the ridiculousness of people thinking that she was a guy. I mean, not only is she like the most delicate feminine looking thing ever, but they have like a full face of makeup and eyeshadow on her too. Like, and it's not like her, her hood's like way over her face. She's got like this like delicate, fragile, feminine little face peeking out of her hood. I'm like, on what planet? I guess we're just supposed to suspend belief there, but on what planet do these people be like, yep, there's another dude. I'm going to concede again, since conceding things is what I primarily do on these reads. I'm going to concede again that that is an amazing point. I did not even think for a second about the fact that she wears, she continues wearing makeup despite being undercover as a male monk. Yeah, like often in these undercover things, I'm thinking like when the first thing you would do would be to wash all your makeup off it's gonna make you look much less feminine she's got like the long lashes the purple eyeshadow the lipstick i was like what why was this actress not too afraid to not look gorgeous all the time it was a strange choice okay pretending to be a guy so absolutely no makeup uh maybe just a little rouge to accent these and possibly high cheekbones <laughs> yeah oh i gotta do the lashes i got fabulous lashes oh and speaking of creeping yeah you're right the way that it's, it's literally like over the course of the episode, her hood just keeps creeping back far. Like every day she's trying to get away with it just a little bit more. Yeah. She's like, oh, they, just keeps, they don't suspect a thing. Just keeps sliding back just another, another quarter inch every day until she's just like got it down around her shoulders. I know. Exactly. I understand the monk posted at the gate and even the need for a gate, but the monk's sentries on the roof seemed a bit much, especially given a recent falling death. The walk and talk across the monastery's lawn is probably the best composed and lit shot in the whole episode, but setting up dolly tracks takes time, so they clearly got one take at it. Ryan manages to step on Brother Drake's line, which must have felt even more awkward in the ADR session when they re-recorded these lines, but don't worry, Brother Drake, maybe intentionally, steps on Ryan's lines moments later. In addition, Ryan appears to be yawning when not speaking, but I think it's supposed to be understandable horror at a subtle foreground detail. Namely, a monk scrubbing down the bloodstained wrought iron chair the abbot landed on. Either the location wouldn't allow the production to set up lights inside and or the production wasn't able to hide the lights in a way that would, would allow them to get the shot they wanted. So everything is beautifully lit except the actors. Look closely and you will see the most interesting piece of background action ever filmed. And I do mean closely, because the timing doesn't quite work with the camera movement. And like that motorcycle in the rain in episode one, it's cut off almost as soon as it appears. But one hooded monk walks backwards across the hallway while a second monk crawls towards him on his knees with his hands in a pleading gesture. I knew you'd find a way to work that motorcycle back into this episode. Oh, every episode. <laughs> that, that, that motorcycle is the hill I will die on. <laughs> I'll leave you to reach your own conclusions about what might be happening between these two. If you didn't choose something homoerotic but now wish you had, good news. Because Brother Drake stops to peer through a partially open door in which a clearly virtue signaling, athletically built, shirtless monk really phones in a strangely nonchalant self-flagellation. Also, there's that peephole coming up later. A little side note. <laughs> oh, don't you worry. Oh, there. <laughs> You notice how we're only about halfway through this? Well, the second half of this is all people. <laughs> we get it, Gary. You're holier than thou. Next time, close the door. Brother Drake moans contently, and the tour continues. This sequence is a masterpiece of surrealist filmmaking, I'm convinced, without which Kubrick would not have made Eyes Wide Shut. <laughs> have you ever seen Eyes Wide Shut? 
Oh, yeah. It's, I wish I hadn't. Did you ever once think of it while watching this? <laughs> no, but I get where you're going. <laughs> yeah, I did constantly. Well, okay. I'm glad. I'm glad at least after the fact you can see where, where I was going with that. Yeah. That's really funny. Ryan the Lion attempts to diffuse the awkwardness of sharing a room with Mickey, which shouldn't exist, given that they're cousins, by intimating he wants to watch Mickey shower. This wondrously uncomfortable scene ends frames too early with Ryan jumping on his bed, but the cut happening when he's barely just made contact with it. I don't know if this was a mistake in the original broadcast version or happened in subsequent transfers. Doesn't change anything, but it's weird. A too dark, but otherwise nicely executed meditation scene is marred by two baffling choices. I don't know much about monastic life, but a featured monk who appears to be eating sunflower seeds from a resealable plastic bag seems incongruous. I'm being generous by guessing they're sunflower seeds, as I'm basing that conclusion on the fact he immediately spits it out, making me think it's either a shell or whatever they gave this actor simply wasn't edible, but why he couldn't hold it in his mouth and spit it out later, unclear. The second fascinating choice, and I stress the word choice, is a meditation pool that's on fire. A meditation fire? Sure. You need a source of light and fire is incredibly trance-inducing, but why is it also a pool of water? Unknown. As Ryan and Mickey go through the motions of meditating, brothers Drake and Lacroix speculate on them being journalists. I guess they can't reach out to Yorkshire to confirm the transfer story because they only communicate via carrier pigeon, but the press angle is very specific, very much a part of this episode, and very baffling. Do they really need to scour newspapers to track down the haunted objects when they have a sales manifest of every object sold to whom and at what address? That's the hill I'm dying on. Yeah, it instantly undoes the entire show. Yeah. What the hell? Shouldn't they just be reaching out to everyone in the sales manifest and possibly offering to buy back the haunted items? Seems like this whole series could be solved with a day of phone calls. Brother Drake trails 10 feet behind Mickey and Ryan, who trails 10 feet behind Brother Francis Ford Coppola, bringing the Oracle his dinner in a conga line of inept spycraft. Fortunately, the pool production design of this monastery's dungeon and the decent suspense music that manages to weave in ritual chanting almost obscures the farce. The show has me believing more than ever it's paying homage to Canada's French culture when Mickey and Ryan discover a guillotine. Given that there's also a human skeleton chained to the wall, Ryan and Mickey might be missing the forest for the trees. Even if this was just role-playing gone too far, this monastery has bigger problems, so forget about the pen, call in the Mounties, and be done with it. But no, they confront the Oracle, are immediately interrupted by Brother Drake, and are sent back to their room with no repercussions. Riveting. I had the same thought. He, like, catches them confronting Brother Curry, or whatever, What's his name? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Brother Curry. Yeah, you nailed it. Yeah, the Oracle is Brother Curry. Yeah, they, 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 he catches them confronting Brother Curry, not in a subtle way. They're like, hey, like, we want to talk to you, and Brother Curry's all flustered. And he's like, hey, the, the, uh, Brother Drake catches them, and he's like, you too, back to bed. And I'm like, really? There's no questions here, no repercussions. You don't ask them why they did that. You don't have, you're not suspicious of them now. Like, nothing? It was just so odd. Yeah, I mean, he could have stopped them at any point, too, before they got to Brother Curry. I mean, I, I think I think I'm going out on a limb here, but I'm guessing anything with the guillotine and the skeleton chained to the wall is probably out of bounds for a couple of new transfers. Yeah, that was strange. I'm glad you uh, picked up on that, too. Just no dramatic repercussions whatsoever. Yeah, when I this saw... This is high drama. 
when I saw him catch them, I thought like, oh shit, they're going to be like expelled, <laughs> but nothing. I was like, oh, okay, that was easy. The next day, as Mickey demonstrates she's never used a rake before, an elderly monk informs them the oracle now predicts the abbot will die today. But Ryan astutely points out that that can't happen because the monastery is currently without an abbot. The elderly monk reacts like this is a revelation, so I'll assume senility is set in. <laughs> I also was like, you didn't know that? And also, did it not occur to any of you that a new one couldn't be appointed? That was my very first thought. A monk dressed like Ebenezer Scrooge receives a note announcing he's the next abbot, then climbs into a four-post bed with a 500-pound canopy. Dang, and he was only four days away from enlightenment. The sheets of deathbed, the bed that eats people, appear to restrain him, then the canopy descends, not crushing him, but presumably smothering him, or some combination thereof. His face pushes through the opposite side of the fabric in a cool Nightmare on Elm Street effect, and he even tears a hole in it in a nice bit of realism, but I guess the weight of the frame is enough to finish the job? Yeah, that whole thing was confusing to me. First of all, I'm pretty sure that's the guy they talked to earlier in the day, who was like, oh, good, we don't have an abbot. Guess this won't come true. And then he gets a note saying he's the abbot, and he's like, awesome. And then he realizes, oh, no, I'm going to die. And then he dies. I'm pretty sure it's the same guy. Oh, interesting. You think it was the guy that I accused of suffering senility? Yeah. Oh, fascinating. Wow. I love it. That's a wonderfully Twilight Zone take on the issue. Yeah. And then the bed thing was interesting because it's like, you know, coming down on him and then his face breaks through. And I was like, oh, I think he might survive. It looks like he's breathing. But then he didn't. I don't think and I don't think that bed would have crushed him. It, it was like one little post through the middle. Right. I mean, I, I say 400 pounds because the, the frame looks so substantial and the, the canopy is so ridiculously thick, but it's basically just fabric as far as I can tell. Yeah. And then also they said that he died from like being choked, suffocated. It wasn't from like the weight of something crushing his body. So I don't know. It didn't make a lot of sense, but. Yeah, I can only assume it's that giant heavy crossbeam across his chest. Uh, I, I don't know. They should have just had his face not break through the other side. Yeah, simple solution, right? Yeah. Uh, again, less is more show, less is more. Exactly. Apparently, this is one noisy suffocation because Mickey and Ryan come running, as does a hunchback monk. That is seen so briefly, I'm going to become paranoid watching the show, thinking there's always some bit of insanity in the background I'm missing. I know, when I saw him, I was like, ooh, creepy. What's going to happen with him? And the answer was nothing. Nothing happened with him. We never saw him again. Yeah, you think you're meeting a new character that's going to show up to play some important role later, right? Yeah, but no. And honestly, like, my brain forgot about it until you put that in. And now I'm like, oh, my God, I didn't dream that. Well, no, I'm, I'm glad you say that because if you had not referenced it right now, I was absolutely going to stop you during this record and ask because I have to know, did I dream that? <laughs> nope. <laughs> I saw it, too. And my brain got stimulated when I saw him and was like, ooh, he's going to be an interesting, cool little addition. False. Nope. Two seconds and he's gone. <laughs> Much like the last episode, the room resets after the crime for some reason, as if the haunted objects are concerned about a murder rap, only it's even more egregious this time since the canopy still has a hole in it. Maybe the pen can't resist taunting the police? Commercial break! Some shows have a monster of the week. This series has a curio of the week. And so do we. Believe me, no one paid us for the following endorsements. 
And once they hear the show, it's more likely they'll pay us to retract them. We just want to share some cool things with you while simultaneously using our platform to give a little free promotion to those without a massive advertising budget. So Hill Street, what is your Curio of the Week? My Curio of the Week is a video game. Little Nightmares. Little Nightmares 1 and 2, because both 1 and 2 are fantastic. I'm not kidding you. I could work for this company selling this video game because I talk about it nonstop. I'm not a huge video gamer. I haven't played a ton of games. I've played like a decent amount, but not a crazy amount. And I, I, I will tell you off the bat that I suck at video games. I am not good. But this game is like one of the greatest times I have ever had in my life playing both the first and the second. I think it is absolutely genius. The like artwork and visuals of this game are stunning. The storyline is subtle, but very, very clever. And the gameplay is just brilliant. Like the, the puzzles that you have to solve, the way that it's structured, it's challenging, but not like tedious and frustrating. I think it is like, it, I mean, it's by far, by far, by far, by far, my favorite video game. I, w- I mean, I know I'm talking technically about two, but just the story of Little Nightmares 1 and 2. The second one is probably, I like it a little bit more than the first one, but they're both just absolutely brilliant. Like I could ever, I'm always trying to get people to play it around me so that I could watch them play because I'm trying to relive it. It's just those video games. If you have not played them and you like video games, run, don't walk to play those video games. And the thing is, like, I know some people are not into horror. I'm a huge, huge, huge horror fan. So I was excited about that element of it. But they're really not super scary. They're not jump scare. Like, they have some creepy creatures in them, but they're, it's, it, you can handle it. Whoever you are, if you're not into horror, you can handle it. But yes, greatest video game I have ever played. I have not one single bad word to say about it. I think they are genius. So yeah, that is my curio of the week. My Curio of the Week is the animated show The Life and Times of Tim, written, directed, and voiced in part by Steve Dildarian. I would describe it as a Mike Judge-esque character-driven domestic-slash-workplace comedy with natural dialogue and stylized animation that remind me of Dr. Cat's professional therapist, which is really its own bonus curio inside this curio. Each half-hour episode of The Life and Times of Tim is really two back-to-back 15-minute episodes, so it's easy to watch even if you're short on time. It ran on HBO for three seasons, and after a long absence, Steve Dildarian is currently back on HBO with 10-year-old Tom, which I bring up because it's so close in style to The Life and Times of Tim. Although, so far at least, if I had to pick one, I'm going with The Life and Times of Tim. So, if you're looking for an offbeat animated comedy, consider checking it out. Mickey and Ryan are again called out as suspicious, not as potential murderers, mind you, but just generally suspicious, and again, absolutely nothing comes of it. Honestly, this scene would make more sense after they were found the first time and could be deadlifted out of this edit and put there, or deleted completely, and either way, the episode would be better for it. Mickey has a fight with Ryan in the yard in full view of other monks despite her vow of silence. She's yelling about how she doesn't want to track down haunted objects, so between that and now wearing her hood so far back on her head, she's daring the others not to notice her true gender. It's obvious she's actively trying to get expelled. She's also daring us, the audience, not to assume the role of Mickey was recast with a young Tilda Swinton. The performance of Canadian pop star Louise Roby- Just out of curiosity, do you, do you concur with my Tilda Swinton appraisal? Yes. Yeah, that's, that's hilarious. 
That's really, really funny. Um, yeah, she, she, uh, she looks like her. So I, I might have even actually had that thought myself looking back on it. Is there anyone else you think she looks like maybe more so or as much as Tilda Swinton? Mm, let me think about that. Yeah, take, take your time. But as we're going, if anyone, if anyone occurs to you, just shout it out. Yeah, but you're, you have it dead on with Tilda Swinton. The performance of Canadian pop star Louise Roby, the actress who plays Mickey, is actually pretty believable, leading me to speculate she's channeling her real feelings about what she's gotten herself into with this show. Ryan insists they have to reclaim the antiques because they're the only two who can do it, while I would argue Jack is not only more qualified, but would be more effective all by himself. Think, Kolchak, the Night Stalker. And speak of the devil, Jack finally shows up, rocking a fun Irish accent, no less, to announce he forged a duplicate pen, probably destroying some Damascus steel in the process. Mickey freaks out at the presence of a spider on a leaf, which is nice foreshadowing, but does nothing for the strength of her character. Ditto Ryan the Lion killing it for absolutely no reason. But far more important is the inclusion of Brothers Drake and LaCroix watching our heroes openly conspiring, including Mickey verbalizing her disgust about the spider. It's fitting this two-second reaction shot of Drake and LaCroix comes so close to the middle of the episode because it is ground zero with the complete destruction of the episode reverberating out in both directions, shattering plot points both before and after. The two people most suspicious of Mickey and Ryan hand-delivered a new stranger to them, watched them all openly scheme, and witnessed one of them breaking their vow of silence. But will not only do nothing about it, they will actually be surprised later to learn our heroes aren't who they say they are. I know you needed to pad the episode, but were those two seconds really worth it? A train engine falling from a bridge is going to pull the rest of the cars with it, so after that disastrous scene, things now get really confusing. Turns out, Brother LaCroix is also not who he claims. He is the original owner of the pen, disappeared after being suspected of murdering his business partner, and somehow rose to a high level of authority in the monastery. Also, he is keeping the oracle more or less a prisoner. You see, all the oracle does is take credit for the murderous predictions Brother Lacroix writes. Why? Because Lacroix agreed to split the advance for the oracle's life story with him 50-50. Life story, you ask? Yes. Apparently, Brother Lacroix uses every part of the haunted pen. Even though he's on the run from the law for a murder he should never be suspected of, assuming he used the pen, and even though he's committing more murders with the pen to ultimately sell the monastery and steal the money, he's also roping in an accomplice to create the persona of the Oracle of Death so he can sell the Oracle's life rights for a cool half mil. Hey, media, maybe the story isn't Oracle predicts deaths. Maybe it's abbots keep dying at monastery with guillotine in basement? Just spitballing here, there's no bad ideas in brainstorming. Well, the Oracle's had enough of confinement and being an accessory to murder, and quits. Bold move, telling off a man you know can get away with murder. Bold move. But Brother LaCroix apparently would rather not get away with it, because instead of choosing, say, heart attack, he opts for auto-guillotine. Is it also erotic? You be the judge. Technically, LaCroix just describes the death as happening in a most gruesome manner, so it's nice to see he allows the pen some artistic liberty. Why does the Oracle have to strap himself down? Does the guillotine have a safety feature where the blade won't drop if the subject isn't strapped down? If not, I have a date with the patent office. <laughs> this episode has really upped its... Oh, you know what? I actually, I kind, of, uh, I kind of like the way you do the commercial breaks. 
Okay. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. I wasn't expecting you to do that. And then you did. And I, I kind of like them. And I've just been leaving them in at least for now. Okay. So, yeah. Why don't you take it from if not, I have a date with the patent office and then commercial break and, and on. If not, I have a date with the patent office. Commercial break. If you like the horror genre as much as we do, you can preview the horror comic book Requiem for a Psychopath right now for free at the Interdemon Entertainment website. Imagine a world in which horror film slashers are real, then imagine a troubled teen bringing one out of retirement to help him take revenge on his bullies. It was written by me and drawn by a friend of the show, Stephen Yu. Again, that's Requiem for a Psychopath on the Interdemon Entertainment website. And, if you dig it, Please either review and rate it five stars on Amazon, or don't rate and review it at all. Ratings of less than five stars send the algorithm into murder mode for some reason. Thanks. I hope you enjoy it. This episode is really up to day for night game since the previous episode, by the way. There was a fairly good one earlier, and this one is probably the same shot, but they tinted it in a royal tasteful blue. Oh my god, I'm sorry. I don't know what's wrong with my brain. I can't do that exactly the same twice, and it was so wrong both times. <laughs> There's a fairly good one earlier, and this one is probably the same shot, but they tinted it a tasteful royal blue. Well played. Mickey and Ryan arrive moments too late and aren't even a little suspicious when Brother Lacroix shows up to explain the death as suicide induced from the heavy burden of his predictive powers. No idea if they bother reporting the death or just chain his body up alongside the skeleton and let nature take its course. In a surprisingly character-driven moment that might be each of their best performances to date, Mickey and Ryan lie in bed discussing how scared they are. Using the pen and the knowledge of Mickey's arachnophobia he obtained when he saw her openly speaking with, sorry, I know I need to let it go, Brother Lacroix sends a single tarantula after Mickey and Ryan, and frankly, I don't want to know how the tarantula wrangler coached the spider to climb up a narrow, bizarrely stiff strip of fabric that doesn't look like any bedding I've ever seen. Ryan swats it off Mickey just in time for her to have already been bitten, but not to worry, Jack assures him that this variety of spider is harmless. So what happened with the prediction? We'll learn in the next scene, but first we should all acknowledge the show wants us to believe Mickey sleeps in her underwear while sharing a room with Ryan the Lion. So creepy. The next morning, Brother Lacroix is so stunned to find Ryan and Mickey aren't dead, he overplays his hand, causing Jack to speculate Brother Lacroix sent the spider to kill them. Fair enough. And the explanation for why they aren't dead is sufficiently clever. Since they're lying about their identities, the deadly predictions don't apply to them. Turns out, evil is kind of stupid. Okay, but then why the spider? You're thinking, well, it showed up, but it just couldn't hurt them. But no. In a bizarre little bit of unnecessary exposition later, we'll learn two unlucky monks were killed elsewhere. So that spider showed up by pure chance. The one in a billion odds of it is truly the greatest miracle of all. Oh yes, and little side note, the two monks that were killed elsewhere were the monks whose names they had stolen. <laughs> so, sucks to be them. Brother Lacroix instructs Brother Drake to send a telegram to Yorkshire to finally check on Mickey and Ryan. So I take back everything I said about monks actually using modern communication tools. You've won the battle show, but you haven't won the war. Why this exchange was interrupted by a weeping monk running past in the foreground is beyond me. Based on nothing more than not seeing the prediction diary on the Oracle's desk in the two seconds they searched his chamber, Ryan suspects Brother Lacroix was behind the murders all along. Which means, like the Oracle, they know someone who kills with impunity is onto them, yet they just stick around in the open waiting to be murdered. 
FYI, if you're concerned the prediction diary is important, the show wants you to think it is, but it isn't. Once again, the press, not the police, seem to be the only ones investigating all the death. Outside the front gates, Brother Drake has to deal with the least sensitive, most combative reporters ever from his perch atop what's known in the biz as a milk crate that I'm sure they just swipe from the production's grip slash electric department. I only bring it up because I'm now willing to bet $100 some of the monks are members of the grip slash electric department. That would neatly explain both why Brother Francis Ford Coppola always looks so uncomfortable on camera and why the sunflower munching monk now stands inexplicably. <laughs> inexplicably that would neatly explain both why brother francis ford coppola always looks so uncomfortable on camera and why the sunflower munching monk now stands in oh fuck now i now i got myself saying that inexplicably inexplicably oh fuck me indubitably my dear inexplicably inexplicably what's wrong with me why can't i say this word i've said a thousand times in my life can you just say explicably 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 that's right right yes okay sorry i didn't chime in right away in case i have to take that one word out of context and splice it in yeah that's fair i uh something's like I, it doesn't sound like a word to me right now my brain is having a weird thing okay is it a fraction thing no i just uh, that's a fair question but no it's weird it just doesn't sound like a real word to me i'm i'm blacking out <laughs> <laughs> well i'm the walls pretty are sure you actually nailed it the first time you got through before i asked you to go back up top so I don't think it's a make or break deal, but yeah, if you want to take one more stab at it. From where? Dealer's choice. Now stands inexplicably. Fine, <laughs> Brother Jake. This Edit. is so weird. I don't know what's happening to me. I'm having a stroke. Okay, uh, just start from and why, and then when you get to stands, I'll, I'll splice in the word, and then uh, you keep going with behind, okay? We're going to do this teamwork. Well, it's just going to be like, and why the sunflower munching book now stands inexplicably behind my It'll be like so much louder. Um, okay. Inex Can you say it for me once? Inexplicably. Inexplicably. Was that right? I'll say it like the dictionary person. Yeah. Inexplicably. 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 Just read up till stands. I'll, I'll say inexplicably. And you continue with behind Brother Drake and uh, teamwork will make the dream work. Okay. You ready to try this this noble experiment? I'm ready. And why the sunflower munching monk now stands inexplicably behind Brother Drake munching sunflower seeds. Hey! Hey! hey, hey. This Dolly Grip agreed to be on camera only if he could munch sunflower seeds as an inside joke with his grip slash electric buddies. <laughs> Did you notice that? No, I didn't, but that's hilarious. I admit I could be 100% wrong, but I swear that's what I'm seeing. Regardless of the poor quality of the footage, I'm certain I can make out the detail of him not just eating something, but spitting something out, which is why I suspect it's a sunflower seed. It is so strange. That's so funny. I believe you. That's hilarious. Like Mr. Sim in the previous episode, Brother Drake is the Job of the episode, caught in the crossfire of a war with demons he will never even be aware of. There's no reason for Mickey and Ryan to comment on why Brother LaCroix isn't handling the press himself, but it does give us a chance to see him sitting on what might be the very same wrought iron chair the f first Abbott landed on, just rubbing salt into that wound. I'm going to give the show the benefit of the doubt and assume that's the case. Jack discovers Brother LaCroix keeps either a writing crop or a telescoping baton in his desk, along with two grip strength tools and a bottle of booze, so not sure what exactly he's into, but I'm confident he has a handshake you've got to respect. 
He discovers the prediction diary and matches the handwriting against a purchase order from the store, which begs the question, can you match the handwriting of monks trained in the same style of Baroque calligraphy? Aren't they essentially human printing presses? I'm genuinely curious. Okay, it's time to finally talk about the elephant in the room. The main attraction. The reason you're all here. Clear your schedules. It's time to discuss the shower scene. And the creepiest Porky's homage ever, a bloodshot eyeball watches Mickey shower through a grimy, nearly tennis ball-sized hole in the wall directly in front of her. The fact the eye is tipped almost vertical and partially obscured in the shadow makes it look alien and alarming and probably gave many children nightmares that haunt them to this day. This show really does dare you to blame the victim. Instead, I guess we can all just assume Mickey is incredibly naive and figured no one could possibly be on the other side because no one in an all-male institution would ever want to see a naked dude. It's just a waist-high hole in a shower wall that has apparently been reinforced with a metal cylinder to prevent anything inserted into it from being scratched. Now let's all just get on with our lives. Quick footnote. Much like the sleeping in the underwear thing, we learned she put Ryan the Lion on shower guarding duty, so I guess there is ample evidence for her naivete. In a series of mind-blowing revelations, Brother Drake informs Brother Lacroix the monks Mickey and Ryan are posing as never left their monastery and were killed by a poisonous tarantula. If I hadn't spoiled this earlier, you would now be in the middle of mentally readjusting to how the rules regarding the pen work. So when he then reveals that Mickey is female, the gears would grind together as you realize that information doesn't matter at all coming on the heels of the previous info. And therefore, the only reason for him to delay delivering this info was an overpowering urge to spy on, he assumed, a man showering. In a scene that completely subverts expectation, Brother Lacroix, having finally at long last reached the logical conclusion Jack is also a spy, enters a room in which Jack is hidden under a table. Unbelievably, the ruse doesn't last two seconds as Brother Lacroix spots him instantly and pulls a gun. Then Jack says, I thought you were meditating, to which Brother Lacroix replies, I am. Pre-meditating. That's actually a great line. Funny that a scene with two seasoned actors instead of our young leads is the best of the series so far. Who knew? Commercial break! Welcome to Crystal Ball, the segment where we gaze into the future and let time make fools of us all. So I've noticed a pattern with the first two episodes. In the first uh, episode, Mickey and Ryan encounter Mary and Vita at their house, only to be separated. They try to track them down at the hospital. That falls through, and then they have to actually end up back at the house where they have a second encounter with Mary and Vita and finally get their hands on the doll. And then in this episode, they're in the monastery the whole time. And they come across the Oracle of Death and presumably the pen relatively early, only to get separated and then have to come back and track down the pen a second time. And they get their hands on the pen, only to then lose it, only to then have a final showdown with Lacroix and get their hands back on it again. So I've noticed this pattern of them. It's that sort of low-budget television or almost sitcom-y thing of trapped in a small space where they track down the object pretty quickly, in part because they have a sales manifest giving them an exact buyer and address. And then it kind of becomes this game of, even though they're so close to the object, they just can't quite get their hands on it, or they get their hands on it only to lose it, having to then track it down again. Will the show continue to follow a format of Mickey and Ryan encountering the haunted object only to be separated and have to track it down again? Oh, yeah. I think it's like the Wiley e. Coyote phenomenon. Like, he, I don't know, encounters that freaking Roadrunner and it 
kills him over and over, but it's like, I don't know. It's like there's like a stupidity there, but it's what makes the episode work almost. And I feel like that's kind of what they're going with here. Like, I think if they spent the whole episode trying to find the object, they wouldn't know what to do with that storyline. So I predict, I think they have their formula and they're going with it. That's my prediction. I don't feel like things are going to change that much, at least not for a while. Right. And it makes sense from a budgetary point of view where they reuse locations and they keep the cast small by simply having them encounter each other over and over again. They get their hands on the object. Oh, it's out of their hands, back in their hands, out of their hands. It's like watching old-timey football. Exactly. In one play, everyone handles the ball at least twice. Yep, makes sense to me. In terms of last episode's prediction, so far, same format. Lacroix was the original owner, and it seems he immediately used it to murder a business partner. So if <laughs> if the haunted pen influenced him in any way, I guess it happened off screen. But I get the distinct sense, especially since he handed it off to someone else to do most of the writing, and therefore probably would not be under its thrall if he ever was. I think the objects are just falling into the hands of evil people. So, so far we've been proven correct, but I'm sure time will make fools of us all. Yes. Agreed. But our intrepid cast can only do so much with the script they were given, as evidenced by the next scene after the commercial break. From his position strapped to a guillotine, Jack reveals he knows of Brother Lacroix's real identity, and Lacroix seems inexplicably wounded for a man about to cut someone's head off. Isn't that weird? The word didn't trouble me at all that time. I didn't even think about it. Yeah, bravo. You nailed inexplicably. That's really strange. I mean, that word's never given me trouble in my life until 20 minutes ago, so that was really weird. On his way out, Lacroix positions a candle to burn through the rope, holding up the guillotine's blade. If I were Jack, I think I would be offended I didn't warrant that fancy new evil pen murder. But just regular old run-of-the-mill murder. And a move that destroys any tension that might have existed, and really their whole subterfuge, Mickey stands up in the middle of a room of meditating monks and just announces she's leaving to look for the pen, then tells Ryan to go look for Jack. This episode is like playing Resident Evil, but with no enemies. Much like how in the previous episode they didn't take Vita from Mary the first time they encountered her, I now feel like they could have solved this thing days ago and have just been drawing it out needlessly. With nine minutes of story left, in barges a brand new character that feels like he stumbled in off a workplace sitcom, further stomping on the fragments of broken suspense. Brother Lacroix makes arrangements to sell the monastery to a land developer who brings all the gravitas of Keanu Reeves and Dracula's castle. This time, Brother Drake is simply listening at the door, instead of peeping through a... sacred... what's that word? Sacerdotal? Want to take one more stab at it? Sacerdotal. 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 This time, Brother Drake is simply listening at the door instead of peeping through a saucer... Sacerdotal. Damn it. This time, Brother Drake is simply listening at the door instead of peeping through a sacerdotal glory hole. For the record, the near minute of dialogue in which Lacroix and the developer haggle over the developer's commission... <coughs> I'm not kidding, is absolutely padding. <laughs> Perfect. No notes. <laughs> For the record, the near minute of dialogue in which Lacroix and the developer haggle over the developer's commission, I'm not kidding, is absolute padding. As they leave the office, Mickey steps out from a hiding place that feels like the single most likely place for her to be seen, finds a pen under Lacroix's chair by luck after mere seconds of searching, and swaps it out for the fake one. However, like that cooler in Arrested Development, it accomplishes nothing, as Brother Lacroix re-enters moments later, finds the diary missing, and immediately knows he's being fleeced. 
On his way out, he again passes Mickey, hiding directly in his path, yet going unnoticed. Despite being at death's door, Jack apparently has too much pride to ask for help. Real blind spot of the greatest generation. Whereas Ryan enters the dungeon screaming Jack's name for no reason I can think of. Why we see some rats for the first time and why they seem to cause Ryan to hesitate momentarily is beyond me. But it happens, and then he saves Jack. Mickey shows up to celebrate obtaining the pen, but Brother LaCroix steps out from the shadows, gun in hand, so I would say it was all for nothing, but all feels like hyperbole. Let's just say it was for nothing. Instead of just killing them, as he had previously been prepared to do with Jack, he insists on reverting to death by pen. Halfway through a prediction, or death sentence, if you will, Brother Drake decides it's the optimal time to finally burst out of the shadows with an axe. But Brother Lacroix is an old white man, not to Calorin, so he misses. Now, Brother Drake doesn't know about the evil pen, so at best, he suspects Brother Lacroix of an old-fashioned murder. But based on what we're actually given and not potential headcanon, it feels like a property sale has driven him to axe murder. In another genuinely clever twist regarding the rules of the pen, Brother Lacroix scrawls a death warrant, planning to tack on all their names at the end, but lacking the prediction diary, he writes it on the sales ledger that already bears his signature, thus dooming himself. But don't get too excited, as terrible digital effects are once again forced to share a sleeping bag with adequate practical effects as the guillotine blade detaches from the base, flies around the room with all the fidelity of a CD game for the TurboGrafx-16. The highlight is the guillotine creeping up behind Brother Lacroix, then backing up to get a running start before finally impaling him. The blade stretches his vestments to the limit, but doesn't pierce them, for reasons. Ryan tries to make the one-liner, he should've stuck to pencils a thing, and fails. Back in the store, Ryan is actually dressed stylishly from head to toe. Between this and the previous episode, the pattern seems to be the wardrobe department provides him one outfit per episode, and the rest of the time he wears whatever the actor had on when he showed up to set. In answer to a question no one was asking, Jack explains the pen can only grant evil wishes, which they still refer to as predictions. Mickey savors being a girl again, her words, and then she and Jack lunch to stop Ryan from writing down a lunch order with the fake pen, just in case it got mixed up with the evil one. Not that it would make any functional difference, I can discern. And that's it! Except to marvel at how they got through a story about a pen set in a location with such a medieval vibe without ever having a sword present just so they could attempt a the pen is mightier than the sword joke. I'm sure they spent days on it in the writer's room, but some nuts are just too tough to crack. <laughs> Good script. Oh, thank you very much. I'm going to be honest with you. I was debating scaling back my run on sentences, but you know, you did so well with that. I think I'm going to start making them longer. Oh, good. Good, good, good. You did it to yourself, kiddo. <laughs> like I always say, never demonstrate competence. So I, that is the truth. That's really the truth. What did you think of this episode specifically in comparison to the previous? The subject matter of the first one is more intriguing to me. I like evil clowns. I like evil dolls. There's something very creepy about something that's supposed to be innocent being sinister. That's just like something that's always been true for me. But I liked this episode more for some reason. I'm not sure why. I, I think, I no, you know what? I think it's because of uh, Ryan. I just like that character. I like the actor. I thought he was fun. There were things about the first episode that I like. I thought Mary was good and the the doll and her were like a good dynamic. I liked that weird, creepy, trippy playground. So there were definitely elements in the first one that were arguably more interesting, but I just thought this story made more sense and flowed better. So I, I for, for some reason, I enjoyed this episode more and thought it was more fluid, I guess. 
Would you say you're a sucker for the subgenre of uh, haunted monasteries or maybe horror stories that have a bit of a religious angle? Mm, I do like those. I do tend to like them, not necessarily because I'm like, oh, it's religious. That makes it interesting. I just usually they think they make for good stories. Sure. And just to clarify what I just said, there isn't really a religious angle to this. It just happens to take place in a monastery. But I guess what I mean is uh, stories that have something to do with monks, monasteries, the occult, secret societies, um, that kind of thing. Right. And, you know, since you mentioned uh, Ryan the Lion and that actor, that's the perfect lead in to discuss performances. So Hill Street, who is your favorite actor of this episode? Ryan. Ryan takes the cake once again, huh? Yeah, I love him. I think he's so entertaining and fun, and I think he does a good job. I really do. Yeah, um, you know, this episode, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a little torn. I kind of like the actor that played uh, Brother Lacroix. I liked him, too. I'm a little bit extra partial to that actor because he actually played a admittedly small role, but a role in the movie Tommy Boy. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Continue to be a working actor long after this. That's so cool. Could have absolutely seen Michael Gross in the role, but uh, I say that with almost any role. So, but yeah, no, I enjoyed him as a guest star, and and I wasn't kidding when I said that scene with him and Jack Marshak was one of my favorite, and the exchange between them very nice, and it, you know does kind of go to show what happens when you put two seasoned actors on screen together. They really do elevate the material. Yes, I agree completely. What did you think of um, Roby in this episode? Eh, she's just okay to me all the time. She's fine, but not compelling. My eye is never drawn to her. I also meant what I said when I I said that I thought uh, Ryan and Mickey's scene where they were just expressing that they're afraid was, in my opinion, probably my favorite moment with those two actors so far. I think I agree with you, actually. It did did, um, catch my attention, too. I felt like that was one of their more, like, genuine, nice moments, and I felt like they were... You know, it's probably because the actors were relaxed. They weren't like up doing movement and that allowed them to do kind of better work versus a lot of their scenes. They're tense and like acting scared or anxious. And that's a lot that's harder to portray in a realistic way versus in that scene, they got to kind of just relax and let the work flow more naturally. So I think that's probably why that was one of their better scenes. Did the uh, character of Jack Marshak grow on you at all this episode? Yeah, he did. I liked him in the first one, but I liked him more in this one. And he just felt like, if you've ever seen Supernatural, he felt like the Bobby. Like he felt like that older character that you can kind of rely on. He seemed like he knew he was doing. He was believable. He seemed confident. So yes, he did grow on me. I liked him. So level with me, what did you think of his Irish accent? It was okay. It didn't stand out to me as bad. I honestly don't remember it. I think it was pretty subtle. You do an Irish accent, don't you? Um, Scottish. Can I do Irish? I'm sure I could do Irish. I can honestly listen to any accent for like a minute and pick it up. I'm really, really good at picking up accents. Humble brag, except not humble. Some things are just true. On the previous episode, I asked you to do a Southern and you did, but then I believe you commented in the end that you slid into Irish. Did I? I might have. I mean, I've done a Scottish in a show before. Scottish and Irish are pretty close, but I'd have to, I'd have to study the differences between them for a little bit to do it, but... Scottish and Irish listeners, send your angry emails to Hill Street at Friday the 13th, the series. <laughs> they do have a lot of, but yeah, you're right. I'm sure Scottish and Irish people would be offended by that. But um, I was in Brigadoon where I had to play a Scottish character. And then I've done Southern before. I'm sure my Southern was terrible. Whenever I'm like, I don't have time to sit there and think about it for a minute. I Any accent I jump into is bad. But I mean, I've done Scottish, Cockney, Southern, British, French. German. I've done all of those accents before and I, I, I'm usually pretty decent at them. But yeah, I don't, I haven't done Irish, but I think I could because yeah. 
So two episodes in, are you, uh, you know, just as excited as ever to move on to the third episode? Heck yeah. Let's see if this character in the next episode is evil too. Any predictions about where the storyline might go as far as the continuing evolving relationships or any revelations about the elements we've seen so far? I think it's we're going to have to get deeper into the series before there's a ton of changes. I feel like they're still establishing stuff. Which, like, the storyline is a good storyline. I like the, the idea of all of these haunted objects have been released and the store owners have to go haunt them to hunt them down. Like, I think that's interesting. It's a good premise. It's similar to, like, the supernatural premise in a way. Like, Monster of the Week type of thing. But, you know, I'm hoping... I'm, I'm They're going to have to dial back Ryan creeping. Because <laughs> you can't do that every episode. It's going to get old. I'm really glad you brought that up because I have to ask... Do you have any thoughts on the infamous shower scene in this? It's, I feel like the writers are having a good time with the show. Like, they're like, yeah, we're going to put in some creepy stuff and it's going to be funny and the viewers will think it's weird. But I mean, there's no way that that scene wasn't weird. It was definitely someone watching someone else shower. And yeah, he thought it was a guy. It's not like that hole was there to make sure everybody's a guy. So yeah, it was, I think the writers are just having a good time with it. Copy that. Yeah, I was, again, a bit surprised to see it, not because of the time period in which it was made, in which case it's pretty par for the course. It continues to be the case that I'm surprised some of the stuff that's in this show that aired on network television. And then upon thinking about it, it just makes no sense when he reveals that he already knew they were lying at that point. So the motivation for him doing it really doesn't make sense, as far as I can tell. Yeah. It wasn't necessary. And yet you still put this... You still put this moment in there despite it being yeah. unmotivated. I know. I mean, I sometimes I really believe, and one of my best friends is a TV writer, and I know it's true. Sometimes I believe the writers put things in for fun. Oh, yeah. And I'm convinced that they're forcing their grip electric department to be extras. <laughs> I could totally see that being true. That's also funny. Thanks for listening, everyone. We know you have a lot of choices when choosing a Friday the 13th the Series podcast, and we sincerely thank you for choosing ours. I'm stunned they still haven't introduced Jason, but at least that means he pretty much has to appear next time. Special thanks to Joshua Romeo for original music, and to Stephen Yu for original art. If you want to support our show, you can leave a review and rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts. If you want an occasional update on our projects, you can sign up for our newsletter at the Inner Demon Entertainment website. And if you want to follow us on social media, honestly, we don't like social media. We're not good at social media, but links can be found on our website. Oh, dear God. Next episode is about a Cupid statue that answers the question, what if serial killers got their hands on a love potion? Take care until then. Good night, everybody.